This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you this afternoon, we pray that as we come to this very solemn passage, that you'll give us the required concentration to really focus on the death of Jesus and his suffering for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week I was reading a newspaper and I opened the newspaper on the front page. Um, we read about terror attacks and how the terrorists attacked these teenagers at a concert. Then I opened up to the world section and I see division and disagreement between the American President Trump and other people. Then I open to the home section and I see people destroying a Teochew porridge store just down the road for $28. And also thinking, you know, when you read about the, the news, there's a lot of uh, wickedness, evil, sin, envy, hatred, deceit, anger, and malice. So how do we understand the world? How do we make sense of such a world? I've come to the conclusion that actually... It's my perspective of the world that must be wrong. Uh, what is at fault is the way that I've been taught to perceive the world because I'm actually disappointed because my expectations are wrong, not because people are actually better than they should be. And I think that's true because as we come to today's passage, we are looking in a sense at the most religious people in the whole of Jewish society, God's people, right? Uh, the priests... The teachers of the law, the elders, they were meant to be the most holy, the most godly people who are a model for the nation. But as we've been reading, they were the ones who sentenced and framed Jesus to death. And in chapter 27, verse 1, it says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans on how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, I think what's important here, as we look at this passage, is the word all. And this word all is a word that's going to be repeated a few times as we look at chapter 27. Because it is so striking that the leaders of God's people who were the cream of the crop, so to speak, right, in terms of their religiosity and their holiness and their godliness, all of them corporately, knowingly, put an innocent man to death. There was no dissenting voice, there was no voice of reason, no voice of righteousness. All of them came to a decision to put Jesus to death. Now the only problem was that the Sanhedrin did not have the legal power to actually execute anyone. That power resided solely with the Roman governor which was appointed by the emperor. And during this time, the emperor was Tiberius Caesar and he appointed in 26 AD Pilate the governor. Now we're not going to spend any time talking about Pilate. You know, some people spend a lot of time talking about Pilate. It's irrelevant what Pilate was like. But needless to say, uh, he was the only one who had power to execute Jesus. But before we actually get to Pilate, we are told about Judas in verse 3 to verse 10. Now, we also told about Judas in Acts. So we don't know whether this happens in between, after, but Luke finds it very important for us to hear about Judas. Now, Judas, in verse 3, 
who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, condemned to death, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and he went away and hanged himself. So the chief priests picked up the coins and said, It against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it is called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him, by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, what's really striking here is that Judas himself recognizes that Jesus is innocent. But the shock is that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders themselves, also know that Jesus is innocent. Look at the reply of the religious leaders to Judas. They said in verse 4b, what is that to us? That is your responsibility. Now, if they had convicted Jesus because he was guilty, then they would have said, no, Jesus is guilty. But what they said was, it is your responsibility, what is it to us? So what they actually shows is the, 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 the totally callous and indifferent nature of re- the religious leaders of God's people to murdering an innocent man. But what is, makes it worse is the two-faced nature of their religiosity. Because they have no problems murdering an innocent man, but yet... They are very strict about ceremonial rules. Okay, we can murder an innocent man, but we can't accept this blood money, right? We've got to handle this blood money in the right way. So, okay, the blood money can't go into the temple treasury. We'll buy a field and we will allow people, foreigners, to be buried there. Now, this is the true picture, the true reality of God's religious picture, uh, God's religious leaders. Totally indifferent and callous to the gross injustice given to murdering an innocent man by crucifixion, but totally strict when it comes to serial matters like the blood money. Rather than dealing with the problem of the blood money to begin with, which is murder, they would prefer to deal with the problem of the money itself. And the reason we are told this is, it says here, it fulfills the prediction of Zechariah. Now, in Zechariah, if we look up here on the slide, right, God had actually predicted, we've actually seen this uh, passage before, uh, yep. we've actually seen this passage before where God had predicted that he was the shepherd of his people. Right? So I pastured the flock, marked for slaughter, particularly the press of the flock. But then the flock detested me, and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Then I took my staff called favor and broke it, revoking the covenant I had made with all the nations. It was revoked that day, and so the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew was the word of the Lord. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. If not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. 
So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So what is actually saying, in a way, is the way that God's people value the shepherd. God's people value the shepherd for peanuts, in a way, right? For just 30 pieces of silver. And they value Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, in the same way. And they buy an unclean place, a symbol of death, a burial field, with the value of the money which was paid for the price of Jesus. Now, as we will see, this is just the beginning of the indictment of God's people, just how evil the people are. And it begins with the Sanhedrin. How two-faced they are, how hypocritical they are, how they keep the ceremonial aspects of the law, but they disregard totally murder and injustice and false witness. But then they bring Jesus before Pilate. Now this account before Pilate is a very interesting one which we need to pay attention to. Because Jesus stands before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting in the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message, Don't have anything to do with the innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now you notice here that, again, the charges against Jesus are completely manufactured and false. Because when he was before the Sanhedrin last week, what was the charge against Jesus? Blasphemy, right? insulting God. But now that they bring him before Pilate, Pilate wouldn't care that Jesus is blaspheming against God. So they need to frame a charge which is serious enough for the crucifixion. And that charge is treason. Rebelling against the Roman emperor by calling yourself a rival king. But yet Jesus refuses to defend himself. And in the Roman legal system, if you don't defend yourself, if you don't speak up, I guess in Singapore it's the same, right? If you go to court and you don't defend yourself, then ultimately the court will find you guilty. Right? If you don't speak up, you keep silent against your accusers, then the judge has no choice but to find you guilty. And that's why it was so amazing that Pilate was amazed. Because Pilate, it's recorded here, makes a few startling comments. First of all, in verse 18, he knew it was out of self-interest or the word envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. And both Pilate and his wife recognized that Jesus was innocent. Pilate 
maybe by his own uh, examination of Jesus, his wife, because she had a dream about Jesus. Now, this is very important because that means that by the approach of a neutral third party, Pilate, who's got no interest at all in Jesus and his wife, they can see that Jesus is innocent. They can see that Jesus is being framed. And why is he being framed? Because of envy and self-interest. Now, that is such a horrible thing. Now, a few years ago, I read this book, uh, which is up here, by Jeffrey Deaver. Have you all heard Jeffrey Deaver? Okay, anyway, he's supposed to be quite famous. Obviously not famous among our circles. But he's quite a good writer. He wrote this series of short stories called Twisted. Uh, as you can see, it's quite twisted, right? So some of them are horror stories. And the reason why he wrote, it's quite interesting, you know, because at the foreword, right, at the beginning, he says, why do I write uh, these short stories? And he says, you know, because when you write short stories, you can actually have these endings which are very shocking, which you can't do in a long story because, you know, if you buy a whole book and the hero dies at the end, then he gets a lot of hate mail. See, all the people will say, you just made me read 300, 400 pages and you wasted my time because at the end I didn't like the ending. Right? So he said the good thing about short stories is that at the end, he can do whatever he wants at the end because you've only read like 25 pages, right? 30 pages. So anyway, there's one story there which kind of like stuck with me. I remember reading it. It's about how this man is really envious of his neighbor. This guy is a real loser. His kids are losers. But his neighbor is very rich. His kids are very successful. He seems to have the model life. And in this short story, he somehow has a couple of wishes that he's given. And he wishes all the bad things for his neighbor. And because it's a short story, they all come true. And in the end, his neighbor dies. A horrible death from cancer or something. And he becomes unbelievably successful and that's the end of the short story. <laughs> now you can sort of see why it's really twisted, right? Because you never kind of like what read a long story like that and feel very satisfied. But as I was reading this account about Jesus, it reminded me of the horror of that short story. Because here are God's people's religious leaders killing Jesus out of envy and self-interest. And this is not our speculation. This is what Pilate himself recognized. What sort of religious priests and teachers of the law and elders are these? That they kill a man out of envy and self-interest. But that is exactly what is happening here. But Pilate himself is not totally innocent, right? Because he has the power over life and death. But... He, as we know, if you go to history, you can look it up on Google if you want. Pilate was a very shrewd political person. I guess, just like today, you want to be a governor, you know, you got to make compromises and things. So, govern, Governor Pilate, not Governor Schwarzenegger or something, right? Wants to release Jesus, but he has to do it in a way which is politically possible. So what he does is he appeals to the crowd because he thinks that if the religious leaders are envious and self-interested against Jesus, then maybe the crowd will be able to set Jesus free. But surprisingly, as you go to the passage, look what happens in verse 20. 
But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him! Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was started, starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and all our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, I think that um, the account here is a very concise account. And you can sort of see what happens, right? So Pilate asked the crowd, who do you want me to release? But the crowd had already been swayed by the religious leaders and they said, we want Barabbas. So Pilate asked again, what should we do with Jesus? And when he asked that, he's actually offering the crowd a chance to give Jesus a lesser sentence. Banish Jesus to some island somewhere. Flog Jesus. And that's it. But the crowd, look carefully, the crowd answered, crucify him. In fact, verse 22, they all answered him, crucify him. And Jesus, Pilate says, is innocent. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And that word keeps appearing, right? All. All the crowd. All the louder. And in fact, in verse 25, all the people answered, his blood is on us and all our children. See, that's a sad part because Jesus is not just rejected by all the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, teachers of the law, the elders, but all Israel, all the crowd shout out to crucify him. They are the ones who demand his crucifixion. Now, Pilate, very drama, this guy, takes some water, pours the water on his hands and washes it and says, well, you know, it's all your responsibility. But this reminds us of the words of the religious leaders to Judas, right? Hey, why is it our responsibility? It's your responsibility. But no, actually, it's Pilate's responsibility as well because only Pilate has the power as the Roman governor to crucify Jesus. If he was a upstanding, if he was a good man, if he was a justice person, he could stand up to the crowd and say, no, I will not crucify an innocent man. But Pilate himself has blood in his hands because ultimately it is his decision alone to have 
Jesus crucified. And he bows before the pressure of the Sanhedrin. He bows before the pressure of the crowd and he has Jesus crucified. But that's just the beginning, right? The, re- the rejection of the religious leaders, the rejection of the people, the rejection of Rome itself. But then we read here that Jesus is flogged. And in verse 27, that is not bad enough. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off his robe, put, on, put his own clothes on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. Now, Luke, sorry, Matthew here is very brief in terms of his description. There's just one sentence for each thing that happens. But you can, you can feel the horror of the mockery and the suffering and the abuse that Jesus goes through. We are told that Jesus was flogged. But we're not told about all the details. But for the ancient reader, the flogging would be a horrific flogging in and of itself. Because if you think of it, uh, the slide, Ben, in the olden days when the Romans flogged you, it's not like, you know, you go to Changi prison today for, you know, you sell drugs and then they cane you with the rattan, right? I mean, already people say that's inhuman treatment, right? But in the ancient world, when they flogged you, they would flog you with a whip. But but embedded in the whip would be pieces of metal or bones. And when they whipped you, it would actually be like uh, ripping off your skin. And, and apparently in, in, in history, it's recorded that you can actually see people's bones or their like intestines. But not only that, it's not enough that uh, Jesus was flogged. But while he was bloody and battered, he was humiliated by the troops. Humiliated as a parody of a Roman king. So they put a, a, a robe on him to make him look like a king. And they crushed a thorn, crown of thorns on his head. They put a staff on, in his hand. But they spat on him and they struck his head again and again and again. Now, I just sort of wonder... Uh, how God felt when he allowed this to happen to his very own son. Remember, last week, Jesus prayed, you know, if it is your will, I will do it. But three times he asked that he would not have to go down this route. But God said, no, you must go down this route. But I sort of think to myself, you know, as a parent, you always don't want your kids to suffer, right? But how would God feel to put his very own son to suffer this sort of humiliation and mockery and abuse for people who rejected him and mocked him and scorned him. Because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Right? He's dying for the very people who treat him like this. For the Romans, for the Jews and the Jewish leaders. Then finally it comes to the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is actually the, can't say high point, right? but it's the climax of the mockery 
and the humiliation and the abuse and the suffering of Jesus. Now, again, Matthew doesn't give us all the details. He summarizes it, but you can imagine just from the one sentence descriptions, the mockery and the suffering that Jesus went through. So after they put his own clothes back on him, they led him out to be crucified. So Jesus would usually be forced to carry the 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 the, the piece of the the horizontal pole right of the crucifixion piece because usually it's just one pole on the ground right so the prisoner has to carry the cross out to the crucifixion site jesus obviously by this time is too weak and battered and you know he can't carry the the wood anymore so they get this man called Cyrene, for a man from Cyrene called Simon, to carry the cross for him. So probably what happened was this poor fellow, Simon, was trying to come into the city. He meets the crucifixion party coming out of the city, and the soldiers just grab him and say, Hey you, carry this um, you know, this piece of wood up for Jesus. So they came to this place called Golgotha, Golgotha which is the place of the skull. And then Jesus is put up on the cross. In verse 34, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now, as we look here, every sentence is really tinged with mockery. So Jesus is offered wine to drink, but the wine is actually filled with bitter herbs. So it's a bit like, you know, you're really, really thirsty and someone gives you a can of Coca-Cola, but then instead of having nice Coca-Cola in it, they, they put really bitter stuff in the Coca-Cola so that when you drink it, it's undrinkable. So actually, this is a form of mockery for Jesus, right, to taunt him. And then when Jesus is lying tied up, uh, sorry, on the cross with, with nails through his hands, he's probably naked, right? Because his clothes are divided by the soldiers. Because it was very common to humiliate the prisoner uh, on the cross by being naked. But it's not just the physical suffering and the taunting that ends there, right? Because as he's hanging on the cross, there is mockery from every quarter. The Romans, even though Pilate says, I wash my hands of everything, uh, still found it within himself after flogging Jesus to put the charge against Jesus. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, on top of the cross as the charge. Those who walked by 
mocked Jesus and said, Save yourself, right, if you're the son of God. The chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, Save yourself, the one who saved others can't save himself. Come down now and we will believe in you. And even the two robbers who were crucified beside him heaped insults at him. So we see almost universally everybody around Jesus that day was mocking and, and making fun of Jesus. The religious leaders, the people walking past, the cross, the Roman soldiers, the robbers, all these people were mocking Jesus. But yet in their mockery, they were unknowingly also speaking the truth. So the sign that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews, is actually true, unknowingly. He's not a political or military Roman king, but when he returns, he will come back as the everlasting king. When the Jewish crowd walking past Jesus mocked, he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was in the process of destroying himself as the temple and rising again in three days. When the Sanhedrin mocked Jesus, they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let God rescue him now, for he said, I am the son of God. Actually, both of those things actually are very profoundly true. Jesus saved others, but he can't save himself because in the process of saving other people, he cannot save himself. He must allow himself to die on the cross in order to ultimately save people in the way that is meant to be saved. And it's very interesting actually where the crowd, sorry, the Sanhedrin mock Jesus and say, if you are the king, ask God to save you and we will believe in you. Because what they're actually saying is they want Jesus to be king without going through the cross. Now, if you remember Matthew chapter 4, which is up here. Right, Matthew chapter 4. Satan tempted Jesus by saying, look, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. You will be king, but don't go through the way of the cross, but bow down and worship me. In the same way, the Jewish leaders say to Jesus, Call on God to take you down from the cross and we will recognize you as king. But both of those ways of being king are actually against God's will because God's will is to be king. Jesus must be king through the cross. So in, in a very ironic way, Satan and the religious leaders of Israel are actually both working against God's purposes. Satan is actually behind, in many ways, what the religious leaders are doing. Then we come to the death of Jesus, verse 45 to 50. From noon until three, it became very dark in the land, probably the area around Jerusalem. The darkness doesn't come about because it was raining, right? There's something supernatural about this darkness. Uh, if you look up here in the book of Amos, right, darkness is associated with judgment and mourning. And that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing to weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. 
I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. And I think this darkness actually reflects God's judgment in a time of mourning that is going to come to a climax when Jesus dies. And that's why when Jesus dies, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice that Jesus doesn't say, My God, my God, why am I suffering like this? He's saying, Why have you forsaken me? And I think that this reflects that at this time, the perfect relationship that existed in the Trinity between God the Father and Jesus the Son is broken because for the very first time, God forsakes the Son. Because on the Son are all the sins of the world. Your sins, my sins are all on Jesus at the cross at this time. And God forsakes the Son. And this moment in time is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 because in Isaiah 53, Jesus takes up our infirmities. He carries our, our sorrows. He is stricken and smitten by God and afflicted by God. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. Because God lays on him all of our sins, all of our iniquities. He forsakes him. But even at this last moment of his life, the crowd still mocks Jesus. So there's a superstition that maybe Elijah will come and physically carry Jesus from the cross. So they give him some wine. They don't give the wine out of mercy. They give him some wine to prolong his life so that they will continue to have amusement in Jesus to see whether Elijah will come and they will be entertained. But it says there, in the very last verse, in verse 50, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now why doesn't it say Jesus died? Why does it say Jesus gave up his spirit? I think the reason is because it is trying to bring us back to the idea that Jesus gives up his spirit deliberately, as a ransom and a substitute for us. See, in the earlier parts of Matthew, right? So in verse Matthew chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 26, both times it talks about the giving up of Jesus' life for a purpose. So Matthew chapter 20, it says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. Your servant who wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, When Jesus had say, finished saying all these things, He said to His disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So right now to the very last, Jesus is in control of everything, and He chooses to give up His Spirit as a ransom for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is a very somber very serious passage. Now, as I read this passage and I see the suffering of Jesus, I ask myself, how much suffering would you be willing to endure for somebody else? 
You know, you read the newspaper about people who are willing to give up their liver or their kidney for a loved one, right? But how much would you be willing to really suffer for someone who doesn't love you back? How much would you be willing to suffer for people who hate you, mock you, make fun of you, torture you for amusement, kill you out of envy and self-interest, and cry out for your crucifixion? I find it unbelievable that Jesus willingly and deliberately and knowingly in in obedience to his Father's will chose this terrible route for people like you and for me. You know, last week, I met up with someone who uh, was talking about how they were quite depressed about life and they were going through hard times in life and they said, you know, uh, there's so little to be thankful for in life. And immediately my mind came to this passage. If we really understood the suffering that Jesus went through, the humiliation of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus that Jesus went through, and on top of that, taking our sins on himself so that he's forsaken by God, isn't that something to be thankful for? To know how much the Son of God suffered for you so that you could be saved for eternity? Well, I think that if we really understand Matthew chapter 27, then it would really fill us with thankfulness. It should fill us with thankfulness. Because if it doesn't fill us with thankfulness, then we really don't know what Jesus did for us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that with all solemnity, with all seriousness, we come to Matthew chapter 27 and we see uh, the full impact of the words the full impact of the sentences that we can just step outside for ourselves and to imagine the suffering of Jesus, which he willingly, knowingly, deliberately went through to save us. And not just us, but even the people who mocked him, who put the crown of thorns on him, who spat on his face, who struck him again and again, who humiliated him and who disbelieved him. Even those people Jesus died for. So we pray that we may be forever thankful for what Jesus did to take away our sins, to see the enormity of him being forsaken by you, that the Holy Trinity would be at that moment broken because he willingly died to forgive us of our sins. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.